Well, you can go ahead and take a seat. And our young friends are dismissed to the kids' table, to Children's Church, very excited today, which is super great. So they can follow Miss Olivia and her helpers, and they have a special lesson, too, that goes along with our, uh, what the adults and everyone here will be learning today and what we'll be sharing in God's Word. So you guys can go ahead. So um, I just want to take a minute to uh, check this out. Watch this video. So that journey begins today, a journey of experience and eyewitnesses, a journey over these next six weeks that will lead us through Lent into Easter. But I want to start off today with a question that will kind of linger throughout our whole series as well as this time together. And that question is, have you ever witnessed something that changed you, that not only stuck with you, but changed you? Were you ever there at a moment or an event or an occasion or have you ever seen something that dramatically impacted you in the days thereafter? Think about the answer to that. And, and maybe, maybe for you, um, if I would ask you to share or if I would ask a, kind of a poll here in our gathering, um, maybe it was the first thing that just came to mind was something that was negative or that you would deem negative, something harmful. Maybe uh, you've witnessed or been a part of a natural disaster in some sense or recovery efforts. Uh, maybe you, you've seen the, the consequences of poverty, um, whether in this country or in other places. Um, maybe you were there at the death of a loved one and that experience has continued to impact you. Maybe even as a first responder, I know we have several folks, uh, what you've experienced in other people's lives has gone on to impact you. But maybe, maybe your story, something that changed you, was something a little bit different than that. Maybe it was on the happy side, a birth unless maybe you're a husband who was in the waiting room, in the delivery room, and you passed out, if you admit it. But maybe it was uh, visiting a place like the Grand Canyon or, or some remarkable place in nature, in our natural world, that even to this day, just the immensity of it just continues to impact you. Uh, maybe whether here or someplace else, maybe you've witnessed a baptism of someone commit themselves and their life to Christ and go under the waters of baptism and be raised. Or maybe for you, that was your own experience of that. Or maybe if you're just really secular like me, then um, it might be an underdog victory of one of your favorite teams that played in a basketball tournament. 
Um, so back to 2016, believe it or not, this is actually, this has impacted me. Um, 2016, my favorite team, the uh, UNC Tar Heels, North Carolina Tar Heels, um, don't, you know, please uh, pray for them this year that they're not going. But anyway, they were in the ACC championship. And I don't know if we have any basketball fans. We're right upon March Madness. And it was the last game against Virginia and it was the ACC championship. That year, they went on to win the national championship as well. But um, it was a Saturday night, I remember. And I was ready to walk, going to watch the game. It was Saturday morning to that day. And I got a text message from a friend of mine who just so happened to have an extra ticket to the game. And what was my response? Well, let me back up. Um, that Saturday happened to be daylight savings time starting. And I was a pastor at the time, and we had church. Our first service at the church I was serving at was 8 o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, daylight savings and like church, I'm like, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, baby, right? I'm going to D.C. I'm going downtown, and I am going to this game. And so I went, got on the metro. I was living in Virginia at the time, metroed up to Washington, D.C. It was like, like, I don't know if you've ever been in that atmosphere. It's just like electric and everybody, like there were UVA people there, there were UNC people there, there were people that were just there for the game because it's a championship. And I have to say, like, we were, like, cheering the whole game. I saw on uh, Facebook other pastors who were there saying, wow, month, Saturday, Sunday morning is going to be really, really rough, right? And, um, and so I remember that moment, that winning shot, and how, like, they drop all the stuff from like the ceiling and there's like loud music and everybody's just like jumping up and down. And I just remember like that moment. Uh, I have it somewhere on an old phone of mine. I couldn't find it. But it, I had that moment of just this whole body of people just became like one in joy for this celebration, this celebratory moment of the underdog at that time uh, rising up to, in, to defeat their rival. And I tell you, kid, you not, you know, I got home at like 3 a.m., which was really like 4 a.m. that time, and like the next morning was super rough, but it was so worth it. And that experience has stayed with me, has, has stuck with me, and, and also just, you know, when I reflect on it, like theologically, it reminds me of the power of people, the power of people when we're united around one thing, um, and so whatever your story is, maybe it is something you know, very holy, like a baptism or something, or maybe just like a basketball game or, or a birth or the Grand Canyon or, or something else. Um, but, but being an eyewitness to something is a powerful thing. Being an eyewitness, being there, when that happened, you were there. It's a powerful thing that you can say you saw it. You can say you sensed it. You could say maybe you even touched it, that you were there. And so today we're starting this new series for Lent called Eyewitness, called Eyewitness, that we're going to be looking through the, the lens, uh, the perspective of people who were there in the last few days of Jesus's life, that people who were close to him, people who followed him, people who knew him, these were eyewitnesses. And I kid you not, these are real people. 
This is not a legend or a fairy tale. Like you, I just got back two weeks ago now from uh, the, visiting the place where you can actually go and see where these people were at that time. Um, that the perspectives of these people at that time of what they witnessed about Jesus. And it's interesting because this word eyewitness, it, it's printed in your notes too if you want to follow along with the message today. But the word eyewitness actually begins Luke's gospel. We have four accounts, life and ministry of Jesus in the New Testament. They're called gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're each communicating to a different group of people about the story of Jesus. And Luke is one of them. And he begins with, with this the saying, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, who, uh, by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the world. The eyewitnesses, autoptes, autoptes is the Greek word for that. It's, think of auto, me, or my, or I, and then toptes meaning to see, or sense, those kind of words that are combined that I have been there, I have seen it. And, in, and overall, eyewitness stories take up a lot of real estate in the New Testament scriptures, in the Gospels. That in the Gospels themselves, those four accounts of ministry of Jesus, they take up as much as 40% of them. Eyewitness accounts, the stories of people experiencing and seeing Jesus. But the thing is, most of the time, we don't recognize how important these accounts are to our life of faith and, and how important they were in the life of the early church. The early church, mind you, who did not have a Bible to read, but yet told Jesus stories when they gathered together about what had been seen and heard. And the reason why people believed in who Jesus was at all was really based on these eyewitness accounts. So the next few weeks, we're going to explore these stories. We're going to explore them, and we're going to look at also, what do they have to say to us today? Because I kid you not, you will see yourself in several of them, in several of the people and so, um, so moving on to this, this part of the message today, um, several weeks ago, um, I, well, first off, last week I shared a story of a little bit of research I did on, on um, who was it, Charles Darwin's uh, step-cousin, I believe it was. Well, this week we're going to look at a little bit of a story of the fam- somebody that you do know, the famous Houdini. Everybody remember, know who Houdini, Harry Houdini? Okay, so he's a famous magician. Um, and I was reading something about him that really stood out to me. Um, and so Houdini, he was an escape artist. He could get out of all sorts of situations. And but it was interesting, in his early days, before he was super famous, he would travel from town to town, village to village, and put on shows for people. Well, in order to generate a buzz for the show that he was going to have that night, he would do something ahead of time. And what he would do is that as soon as he got into a town, he would go to the local jail. He would go to the local jail, and people would also hear that he was going to the local jail, and he would have this kind of entourage of people that were following, seeing what's going to happen, you know, all the mystery there. And he would ask the people there to lock him in the jail. He would do this time and time again. Lock him in the jail, and time and time again, voila, he would free himself. He would free himself. And then he would sell a whole lot of tickets to his show that night. That was his kind of way to go. But, but the thing is, one jail he arrived at, things didn't quite go as planned. See, when he arrived in that town, the jailer had heard of him before, and the jailer was smart. 
And so when Houdini entered the jail, the jailer, he took the key and he turned it the wrong way. Think about that. He turned it the wrong way, which actually unlocked the jail cell that Houdini was going to be in. And then he removed the key and everyone watched as Houdini tried to escape. Well, he struggled. He struggled because he was under the assumption he was locked in this thing. And so he struggled at the lock and he's trying and trying and trying. But all the while, imagine that, he's turning the lock in the wrong direction and actually he's locking himself in the prison cell over and over and over again. And ultimately, ultimately he failed. Imagine that, the famous Harry Houdini, he failed. But he didn't know what he was actually doing. So he left the jail cell, he admitted his defeat, and that's when the jailer admitted what he had actually done. So Houdini realized the whole time he had been in that cell, he had believed a lie. He believed a lie. He, it was a lie that held him captive in the cell. And I think when we think about that, living your life by a lie is a lot like believing a door is locked, but it's not. That we can be captive to something that we don't have to be captive to because the door is already open. And so isn't it true, though, that, that what we tell ourselves, what you and I tell ourselves, uh, doesn't that often keep, us ca keep ourselves captive? I don't know about you, but I had like this little running commentary in my head. Um, I don't know if all people have this, but I do. And, and this little running commentary, and it gives me like commentary on not only like other people and things. Um, sometimes it comes out when I talk to myself, right? I'm like getting my clothes ready, like pink shoes or purple shoes or like, or, oh, should I wear the jeans tomorrow or the pants? You know, and I'm like saying this aloud. I have like the running commentary in my head, but that running commentary sometimes can go wild and sometimes can be like, you idiot, right? You freak, like, oh man, you messed up again. Like, man, that, you screwed that up. Like, that was a mess. Like, all those kinds of things that, like, you tell ourselves, we tell ourselves over and over and over again. And those thoughts, over time, can keep us captive. Sometimes, though, sometimes we actually choose the cell we're in. We choose to lock ourselves in the cage because maybe it's comfortable, or we know it. It's safer. Maybe it's less scary than, than going out into the world. But the thing is, whatever it is that might be trapping us in the cell with the open door, whether it's ourselves or our thoughts or what we've done, at the same time, God's given us great potential. And he invites us into freedom outside those lies that hold us back. And so today, today we're going to talk about the mistakes we make and the lies that we believe the, about ourselves and what we've done and what we've done wrong, but also how it's possible to enter into freedom outside of those lies. So today's eyewitnesses, the two that we're going to look at today, are two of Jesus' disciples. They're very different people, very different um, you couldn't have more of a divergent view of these guys. Um, we often name our children after one of them, but there's very few parents that will name their children after the other. You know, maybe you would name a bad dog after the other. <laughs> uh, one is thought to hold the keys to heaven, 
And the other is depicted in kind of medieval lore and paintings in Dante's Inferno, the darkest place, and whether that's true or not, but he's depicted that way. And so the people are Peter and Judas, two, two that represent almost opposite places, we would think, on, on the surface in the spectrum of humanity. And that Peter, Peter, Peter is framed as being so close to Jesus, right? He's one of like Jesus's compadres. He's, he's one of the closest ones out of his whole crew of 12. But then Judas, Judas is framed like the devil himself. But the thing is, when you look at their stories, when you look more closely, they have a lot more in common than you realize. See, they were both disciples. Both were among the 12. They were both chosen. Both were chosen and invited. Think about that. They were both chosen and invited by Jesus to walk with him for three years. Both of them. Both of them and their, their, their stories, what they carried with them. Both of them were chosen and invited. And Jesus saw potential in both of them. Think about this. If you were one of the 12 disciples, then you had like unlimited access to Jesus. That you were with Jesus all the time, almost every waking hour, and that you would see the teachings, you would have been there, the feeding of the 5,000, oh my gosh, and then the Sermon on the Mount, like great sermon, Jesus, like that was just amazing. And, and you would have been there for the miracles, right? This guy was blind, and now he can see. This person was mute, and now they can hear. And this person, like this little girl died and now she's back alive. Like, oh my gosh, think about that. They witnessed all this stuff. But in the last few days of Jesus's life, their differences come to light. Their differences, but especially the difference, especially how they differ and how they deal with their mistakes. How they deal with their mistakes and the lies that they produce. That's where they're different. So, so first, let's start with Judas. Let's start with Judas. So what was his mistake? Well, let's, let's read about that. Let's read about it in Matthew chapter 26. Luke also has a version of this story. We're going to check out Matthew's today. So starting in verse 47. So, so this is on the night before Jesus was crucified, mind you. So while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. So, so let's think about that part of the story here. So what was Judas's mistake? His mistake was he betrayed Jesus. He made a mistake. Oops, right? Betraying Jesus. But, but we rewind a little bit of time. This is not like on that night he's just like, yeah, I'm going to betray Jesus tonight. Like he'd been thinking about this for quite a while. And, and, and actually, scholars debate why he actually chose to betray Jesus. Uh, some say, was he money hungry, right? 
Was he hungry for money? Um, was he disappointed in Jesus? Jesus, we see that last part about the sword, right? Jesus wasn't coming to overthrow the Romans like everybody thought. He wasn't going to use his power that way. Like maybe he was disgusted in him for that. Like the story doesn't tell us why he did this exactly. But it was wrong. It was wrong. Betrayal. Think about that. Betrayal. Have you ever been betrayed? Has someone ever betrayed you? But I think harder question. Have you ever betrayed somebody? Have you ever betrayed somebody? If you really examine yourself. But but we see the question is how did Judas respond? So he betrayed Jesus. But then Matthew goes on in the next chapter and shares when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And then he went away and hanged himself. So what was his response, Judas? Well, first thing we see is a deep regret. Deep regret. Judas is full of guilt and shame. He wants to rewind back time. Rewind time. I'm thinking that song, Turn Back Time. I'm, I think in songs often. But he wants to rewind things, right? Have you ever felt that way? You're like, I just totally blew this. Like, I wish I could just like hit that button, like pause and then like, hey, rewind here. I, he wanted to go back. And so he, he realizes he can, he, but he tries to do what like any of us would do. He takes the money that he got for the whole thing and he goes back and he tries to return it. And they're like, no, 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 no good. Like, hey, it's all good. It's it just forget it. It's, that's on you, right? Judas, like you made this choice. He tries to do it, but it's not enough to relieve the weight of sin that he's feeling, that he's trapped by his mistakes. Even so much that so deep was his regret that he thought it better to die. Think about that. He thought it better to die. And so let me just pause here to say a word about this. This message is not about suicide, but I also recognize that a lot of us here, I would guess that probably about half of us in our lives in some way have been shaped by someone who has committed suicide. And and I have to also confess here that the church, the big C church, has hurt lots of people when dealing with suicides has been trying to speak for God in those, has even kept people out of cemeteries because of that. But the thing is, we have to recognize that that God, we have to entrust people to God's presence, that a person's eternal status is between them and God. And there's also mental health that factors in that, a brokenness in our minds that would make someone try to go to that level. But his act, when we look at Judas, His act shows how deeply regretful he was and how heavy it was for him. And so let me also say this. If you're someone who has or maybe in some time in the future struggles with this, like even ideation about suicide, you know, I hope that you'll reach out for help. I hope that you'll be strong. It's not a weakness to ask for help, but that you can't navigate this alone because that's what Judas tried to do. He, he, He was so, it was so heavy for him. And secondly, though, I hope that you would know God's forgiveness and love and that hope is always available and that none of us 
have to live in the prison of shame and guilt for whatever we've been through or whatever we've done. And that hope and that love and restoration and forgiveness is available now and always. See, Judas unfortunately died believing the lie that he was no more than Jesus' betrayer. That's all he believed about himself. That's what he was saying in his head and that its story ended there. And that he allowed that to define him, believing that he could never receive forgiveness, that Jesus, the disciples, they would never forgive him for this. And it's easy for us to sit back, see, oh, well, that's him, right? Or to point the finger. But, but how often do we do that? Maybe not to the extent of Judas, that we want to make right the past wrongs. We're tempted to let our mistakes, our failures to define us. And we stop our stories there. We stop living there. We stay there. We ruminate on those things. And they magnify inside us to believe I'm a failure. Or we do the opposite and we totally blow it off and, and we don't think about it, that nothing matters anymore. And maybe, maybe sometimes we worry that, that God will never forgive us for that or offer us freedom, that I'm too far gone to be loved by God. Maybe you even have a friend or a family member who's wrestling through that right now. And so just shrug your shoulders, give up, and just keep going, right? But we don't have to. See, God allowed Judas to cut himself off. God didn't make Judas kill himself. God allowed him to take that action. I believe it grieved God in his heart. I don't believe that was God's wish for Judas. Because our mistakes, our regrets, and our sins don't define who we are. And we see that in, Je we see that in Jesus and his interactions with Peter. See, Peter, Peter gives us a glimpse of a very different story, but a very similar scenario. Because Peter made a huge, grave mistake. But Peter's response is key to help us unlock God's freedom. See, he doesn't let sin define him. Instead, he looks for God's freedom and forgiveness, and he allows that story to continue. See, Peter, Peter was part of that inner circle of Jesus' followers. He was one of his closest friends. At the Last Supper, Peter, if we back up in the pages of Scripture, Peter does what many of us would do, you know, who are like gung-ho about someone and something, and he makes a vow, I'm never going to leave your side, Jesus. I'm never going to leave your side. And then what happens? Like a couple hours later, how fickle are we, right? A couple hours later, he does that. He makes a bad choice. He changes his mind. And so let's look at what happens here. So it's kind of set what happens. Jesus was just arrested. That story we just read. All the disciples whoosh, like run away. They're scared to death, like, oh my gosh, this is getting real, guys. And the guards, the guards take Jesus to the high priest. And what we see, Peter, he doesn't run away at first. He, he hangs out outside in a little campfire. Um, and so Matthew tells us, now Peter was sitting in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about. How often do you say that, right? How, I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. He said, I don't know the man. He cussed too. 
after a little while. That's what it says. He cussed. He cussed. He said it with an oath. Yeah, look, the Bible says Peter cussed. So there you go. Okay, moving on. After a little while, after a little while, there is no unpardonable sin, by the way. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. You're from Galilee, right? Oops, like, you know. Uh. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them. Once again, cussing Peter. I don't know the man. Remember, he's a sailor, so that's where he came from. I don't know the man. But immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken just a couple hours before. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And what did he do? Just like Judas, he went outside and he wept bitterly. Do you see the parallels here? So similar. So similar. So what was Peter's mistake? Well, Peter's mistake was in Jesus' time of his greatest need, he denied he even knew him and he left him to die alone. Denial and abandonment. And his response there was he cried uncontrollably, just like Judas, deep regret, just like Judas. But from here, what's interesting is in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel, Peter disappears from the story completely. If you flipped ahead in the next chapters, Peter does not appear yet again in Matthew's gospel. Interesting, huh? Interesting. But yet we know from history that there was a Peter and he went on to, to be a leader in the early church. And so we ask, well, what happened? Well, to see what happened, we have to turn to a different gospel, and that's the gospel of John. See, basically, if we fast forward, if we fast forward past the crucifixion and even past the resurrection, we'll visit those in the next couple weeks. But basically, we find out that Peter's response is to go home to do what? To fish, right? Like I said, he's a sailor, he's a fisherman. And imagine the whole time he was doing what you and I do up here, beating himself up, like over and over and over again, like hours go by and he doesn't even realize it, like, oh my gosh, I just can't, I can't, right? Just horrible, that he believed he wasn't made to, for God to use him. He believed that he wasn't fit for this. He believed that he had made the worst error, but these were all lies. These were all lies that had the potential to keep him from living out the future God had for him. Well, who shows up on the scene? Jesus. Isn't it interesting Jesus shows up in unexpected places in our lives, surprises us? And so he, Jesus shows up on the scene and there's this miraculous catch and, and Peter goes back and recognizes it's Jesus and, and they have this little like breakfast, like men's breakfast on the beach, basically. They're having this little breakfast on the beach and they're eating this fish together. And, and John tells us this, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And then Jesus goes on to ask him the same question two more times, corresponding to the three times that Peter had denied him. And I imagine on that third time, Peter was like stuck, remembering his mistake, remembering what he had done. He was confronted with his failure. But the story wasn't supposed to end there. Because you see Jesus' response? He says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. 
See, he's confronted with failure, but it's a healing moment. He's a healing moment of forgiveness. By accepting Jesus' forgiveness, Peter is called to a new freedom. He's called to a new future. He's called to a next chapter. And, and where did that forgiveness and freedom take Peter? Well, first, out of that unlocked prison cell that he had locked himself in the whole time. And he became a leader of the early church. And we can read about him in the book of Acts and the things that he had done as this, this church and the message of Jesus was just spreading this movement. He was called a rock by Jesus himself. And this movement spreads across the whole Roman Empire. Even though they were under occupation, even though the Romans had the power and the military prestige, that this movement of Jesus followers just spread remarkably. Uh, scholars can't even believe why and why it wasn't squelched out. Well, we know why it wasn't squelched out, but Peter made a different, a different decision with what he did with his failure. He confessed his mistakes, and then he accepted God's freedom and grace. And I think for each of us, Kind of drawing things together here. Each of us have made mistakes. All of us have sinned. All of us have regrets and things we would love to rewind time and redo. But the difference between Peter and Judas was not that one made mistakes and one didn't. The difference was in their response. The same grace was available to both. One chose to end it and one chose to step into it. The key to freedom is forgiveness. See, one chose to believe in God's forgiveness, the other chose to believe that redemption was impossible in his case. That, that for us, we can choose to allow our past and to allow our mistakes and allow our sin to, to keep us in prison and to control us. We can even choose to downplay our mistakes and think, oh, well, they're not a big deal. They're not a big deal for me. They're not a big deal for anybody else. Or we can choose a path to freedom and forgiveness. To accept the fact that God's left the prison cell unlocked. And so in this season of Lent, a season of preparation, part of that preparation involves confession. And, and the thing is, confession often involves a very negative connotation of guilt and shame. And maybe you grew up in a church or have been a part of a church that that was the case. And you're told you have to confess and confess and you're just reminded how sinful that you are. But the thing is, confession is really about being honest with ourselves and honest with God about our mistakes. Honest with him about our lies that are holding us back. And through our honesty, that's where we're able to access forgiveness. And not only that in that moment, but to step into the future with freedom. It's not to beat ourselves up, but to move forward. And so I believe that today, there are some of us here today, in person, online, who are trapped in that prison of your mistakes, of that talk that's in your head, Rewinding tapes over and over again, the lies that you've chosen to believe that you're convincing yourself that what you're worth. But what are those lies that you tell yourself? Is there an apology to make? Is there an apology to accept? I don't know what your answers are, but you can choose to beat yourself up and live in regret or to choose forgiveness and live in God's freedom. One of my favorite scriptures, Galatians 5.1, says it is for freedom that Christ has set us, what? Free. It means through Christ you have the ability to be free. The first step 
is what my friend Peter did. To confess it, but then to accept it and live in God's forgiveness. And to know that Jesus offers all of us that grace, that freedom right now.